no therapist, no shaman can ever tell you, this is the plant you should take, or this is the fungi you should take, this is when you should take it, and this is how much you should take. You're making a deeply intimate decision about putting something into your body that's going to shift the way you perceive, potentially open things up for you that you didn't even know were there. I do think that there's an element of, there's a, there has to be a calling. And mm-hmm. it, it really begins, if you want to engage with psychedelics, in the same way that you might, if you were contemplating doing anything really serious in your life, whether that's like moving or changing your job or getting a divorce, by becoming quiet and just spending time with yourself, journaling, meditating, reflecting on what your intention is and what you're hoping to get out of the experience. Welcome to Neurons to Nirvana, a platform for creative forces that embrace the unconventional and the quest for artistry, humanity, innovation, health, and healing of the mind and soul. Join me, Tom Hartridge, on a journey celebrating experiences unbound by physical borders or traditional norms. From inside the mind to the far reaches of the universe, this is Neurons to Nirvana. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm excited to share my conversation with this week's guest, Shelby Hartman. Shelby is the co-founder and CEO of Double Blind Media. Double Blind began as a print magazine launching in 2019 with minimal resources. Since its inception, Double Blind has evolved into a media company and education platform at the forefront of the rapidly growing psychedelic movement. Cannabis pioneer, Forbes contributor, and recent guest of Neurons to Nirvana podcast, Andrew D'Angelo, dubbed Double Blind Media as the masterclass of psychedelics. Shelby and I had our enlightening discussion on several topics right after Double Blind's first annual festival, Mycologia. The New York Times released an article last week with the festival as the focus with providing the origins of Double Blind Media and ultimately illustrating its emergence as the definitive resource for psychedelic education and community building. Shelby shares her personal experience with psychedelics, her thoughts on micro versus macro dosing, and how Double Blind offers courses for people who are just beginning to explore psychedelics and for those looking to go deeper in their healing journey. We also discuss that psychedelics are not a cure-all and are not necessarily the right solution for everyone. Shelby further stresses the importance of using Double Blind as a premier resource to determine what might be the best approach precisely. So without further ado, let's dive deeper and get to know Shelby. Shelby, hey, super excited to speak with you about your magazine, Double Blind, and then also uh, get your thoughts and, and take on plant medicine and the psychedelics. First, I wanted to ask you, so your magazine, Double Blind, has been, you launched it when, in 2019, is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, our first issue came out in June of 2019, which was actually just after Denver became the first county in the United States to decriminalize psilocybin. So it felt like pretty divine timing. Oh, wow. And how do you think it's been received and how has it evolved since you launched it? Yeah, it's been received miraculously well from the get-go. You know, we started with 
no resources. We still don't have a lot of resources, but we started with literally nothing except for an idea to start a print magazine and very quickly realized it was something that was resonating with people. Our audience grew really fast. Our engagement was really high. We're like, holy cow, we're onto something here. And in the beginning, it was just a print magazine. Like the end and beginning, beginning and end of the idea was we wanted to put out a beautiful print magazine. People could sit in their houses or in nature and just read about what's going on within psychedelics. And it's evolved a lot since then. The print magazine is still really kind of the beating heart of Double Blind, but we now have a whole educational component with courses and webinars and we just did our first festival this past weekend in the desert. So um, it's really it's really grown and, and evolved a lot since, since that first magazine. Really? So tell me about this festival. Uh, what was the name of it and where was it exactly? It was called Mycologia and it was in the Kiyama Valley, which is in northern Santa Barbara County at this beautiful campground called the Crazy Diamond Campground by yellows and it's a campground that was built by burners for burners for events exactly like this so there's like this gorgeous teepee with a fireplace in the middle and pillows all around where we did ceremony not with psychedelics but with cannabis and breath and other through right. other legal means there's a pool where we had bands and djs and we had beautiful food and bonfires at night and dancers and fire dancers. And it was, yeah, the whole thing was just quite uh, miraculous, to be honest. What do you think the turnout was roughly? Um, there's only 250 people allowed at the at this venue. Okay. So there were 250 people there. And, you know, it was actually really beautiful to keep it intimate because everyone really got to know one another. And by the end, it really felt kind of like summer camp. Like you could tell, like when people arrived, they were sort of like nervous. They didn't know what the experience was going to be like. And by the end, people were all, bye, it was so nice to meet you. <laughs> See you next year. So it was beautiful. I love the size. And I think that, you know, next year we're hoping we'll do it in Woodstock, New York. Oh, wow. And... I think that, you know, we'll probably grow it to like a thousand or 1500 people, but we really don't ever want it to be like thousands and thousands of people because then it loses that sense of community. Right. Do you mind sharing like what's your personal experience with psychedelics and plant medicine? Sure. Yeah, I did psychedelics for the first time when I was a freshman in college. I did mushrooms with some friends in my dorm at Bard College in New York classic kind of teenager discovering psychedelic story. I had no idea what shrooms were. I had no idea. I just didn't know anything other than that, like I was going to do shrooms with my friends and it was something we were all going to do together. And I was like, okay. And um, obviously, you know, took them and very quickly realized that I had had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I don't know, it just opened me up a lot. It really shifted my perspectives on things. It shifted my perspective on the capacity of the mind and the body and the spirit. And it, at a similar time, um, Bard had a mandatory curriculum for all freshmen that was based in philosophy and took folks from ancient philosophy, Plato, and all the way through to 19th century existentialism. So at the same time that I was discovering psychedelics, I was also reading philosophy for the first time. And got sent into a pretty deep existential crisis. 
uh, cliche existential crisis where I was like, oh, nothing matters. Everything's arbitrary. Like there's no objective truth. There's no objective reality. Like I'm so confused about everything, every value, every expectation that I've inherited from my society is not real. It's just a, a condition of our culture, like the whole, the whole nine yards. And basically just kept tripping like once or twice a year, usually like maybe two or three times a year on mushrooms or acid from the time that I was 18 until um, I was 25. And then when I was 25, I discovered ayahuasca, started sitting in ceremony with ayahuasca in February of 2020, right before COVID. I went to the Amazon for the first time and sat in a ceremony at the Temple of the Way of Light. It was a 10-day retreat, all women's retreat outside of Iquitos, Peru. Um, and then I've also like tried a bunch of other psychedelics in more recent years. Like, I don't know if you consider ketamine a psychedelic, but I've tried like ketamine. I've done MDMA. I've done 2CB. I've done, I have a DMT vape pen. I tried changa. Like since starting, <laughs> since starting double blind, like people just, you know, they just give me drugs and they like encourage me to try them. And Obviously, I, I want to always be really mindful about what I'm putting into my body and set and setting and preparation and all those things that like those those good things that we talked about on Double Blind's website. But, you know, I am interested in exploring my own consciousness. And I think that we all have the right to do that. So so I, I just tried Chango for the first time at my retreat in the Yucatan jungle in Mexico. What was your experience? My experience with Chango, I've probably done it like four, four times. Mm -hmm. I've never had visuals on Changa, even though whenever I do it with friends, I find that they do have visuals that are mild, such as like what my best friend did it with me and she saw like pink flowers that were blooming. And I had another friend who saw color, like swirl, swirling lights, swirling colorful lights. So I've never spoken to anyone who had like really vivid imagery or scenes like the way you hear people talk in ayahuasca about like and then the jaguar approached and the jaguar took me into the jungle like nothing like narrative <laughs> yeah. nothing like narrative and that um complex but definitely just like colors distortions things like that for me um changa has really been a very somatic experience so it's also been great for my anxiety and i've spoken to friends of mine who have said, you know, it's just so good for relaxing that you can often feel like Changa is just giving all of your nerve endings a massage. Like it's just going through your entire body and like showing you all the places that you hold tension that you didn't know you hold tension, held tension. So that's been um, my experience with Changa. And one of the reasons that I really love it as well as DMT, cannabis, ketamine is because for me, I do like to check in with myself and drop in with myself during the week. Sometimes it's not like I'm tripping like every single week, but there are times where, you know, I have a night at home alone, done with work for the day. And I feel like I just want to drop in, but I'm obviously in no position to have like a four to six hour mushroom trip or like a eight to 10 hour LSD experience, nor do I want to. So having some of these medicines that last for a shorter period of time I know that I'm equipped to like kind of trip sit for myself is wonderful, you know, because I can just do that in, in an evening and then go to bed and get up and have my day. Okay. Yeah, for me, it was extremely vivid and took me by surprise. Now, you said you were in Iquitos uh, 2020, right before COVID, right? Yeah. 
Love to get your perspective as a female. Did you go down there with friends to Iquitos? No, I went no. by myself. You were by yourself? Yeah. And I'm certain you've heard or read the about certain uh, women being taken advantage of down there or in, in anywhere. Um, even in the U.S., shamans have taken advantage mostly of, of women during ceremony and whether it's rape or there's all kinds of ways they've been taken advantage or that I've read about. What were your thoughts on the ecotourism and did you feel threatened at all down there? Yeah, I didn't get to do as much reporting on that as I wanted to because I really was going down for myself to have this experience and I didn't want to feel like obligated to work when I was in Iquitos. Right. That being said, you know, for me, the reason that I chose to go to the Temple of the Way of Light is because I knew that it was a reputable ayahuasca retreat center. It's basically where, like, one of the main retreat centers that people who work in psychedelics go to. I know the founders of the retreat center. I know tons of people who had gone there and had positive experiences. So I had no doubt in my mind that this was going to be a good place for me to go. And also for me, you know, without getting into too many specifics, I'll say that like most women, I, you know, I have been violated in the past by men. And so for me, I do feel safer sitting in ceremony with all women, which is part of the reason I chose to go to that retreat. It was all women in the ceremony and also all of the maestras were female. And um, I reported a story for the, I wanna say it was the third or fourth issue of Double Blind on my experience going down to Iquitos and um, I interviewed the founders of the temple about the history of the temple and how they found these maestras. And actually it's quite interesting that the first kind of maestro that the temple had prior to working with these female maestras did take advantage, did actually try to take advantage of the now wife of the founder of the temple. Um, something about like taking down her pants to check her ovaries or something weird. I can't remember what it exactly, but you could go back and read it. But the point is like him having had that experience was what inspired him to go and find these female maestras to hold space at the temple. In terms of like other things going on within Iquitos, yeah, it's it's tricky. I mean, firstly, like there's a place called Berlin Market, and it's basically like an outdoor market that has it has everything from like produce to plant medicines. And there's a shop, a storefront in Berlin Market, where people can go and buy ayahuasca vine and chacruna leaf to make ayahuasca. And it's the old, it's the main. As far as I know, this is like the main place that facilitators go to get the ingredients necessary to brew ayahuasca. And so facilitators from all over the world actually fly down to Iquitos. They go to this shop, they buy the vine and the chacruna, they make the chacruna, and then they bring it back, often dehydrated in their suitcases to Spain or Hawaii or wherever it is that they're facilitating ceremony. There's like anyone can go into that shop and just buy those ingredients. A, there's the concern around like, quote, Westerners, foreigners, people who don't have like an ancestral tie to ayahuasca, who haven't trained in the jungle, who haven't done dietas, trying to hold ceremony and like being well-intentioned, but maybe just not really knowing like how to hold the container or how to hold the space. That's one thing. 
I had an experience in Joshua Tree. My first ayahuasca ceremony was with some very well-meaning people who did not know how to hold the container. And it was like out of control. Like there just were too many people there. There wasn't enough support. And then the second piece would be like Peruvians and people who actually live in Iquitos who are doing ceremony, but are trying to take advantage of tourists. And that's definitely a thing as well. And it's, you know, it's concerning because, you know, folks go down to Iquitos and, you know, they, sometimes they go looking for ayahuasca. Sometimes they just start traveling and they don't even, it doesn't really occur to them even that they might drink ayahuasca, but then they meet someone who's like, oh, da, 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 this experience and you should try it. And like people do end up in, in bad, bad situations that way. And so, I would just say there's a lot of really, really, really amazing facilitators and retreat centers in and around Iquitos and also in and around Pucallpa, Colombia. But it's imperative to know who you're going to see before you arrive and that you have referrals and everything else. And Double Blind has a guide actually on our website called How to Vet Your Psychedelic Guide. And I, if anyone's thinking about sitting either in a ceremony or with like an underground therapist or something like that, like we highly recommend that you go and read that guide and ask your facilitator questions before um, taking medicine with them. Yeah, it's really important. You know, psychonauts in particular, they lament the commercialization or gentrification of uh, psychedelics. And we, as you mentioned, like in places like Denver and Oakland, we, there's decriminalization and definitely pharmaceutical research within the U.S. and making an access and affordability of plant medicine even more elusive. I feel like, do you see this mirroring what's going on with healthcare? I mean, because the people who could use it, it may be just like everything else, a disparity where they can't even have access to it. Right. So there's a few different routes to legalization or reform that are being explored and progressing simultaneously. So there's decriminalization, as you mentioned, at the local level. Denver is the only county at this point that has just decriminalized psilocybin. All the other jurisdictions that have decriminalized psychedelics have followed in the footsteps of the resolution that was passed by Oakland City Council, which decriminalized all natural psychedelics, except for some of these uh, initiatives exclude peyote at the request of the Native American church. And then we also have, as you mentioned, the legalization of psychedelics in the context of therapy through the FDA. So MDMA and psilocybin have been given breakthrough therapy status by the FDA, MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder, and psilocybin for major depressive disorder and treatment-resistant depression. And those will both likely be on the market as prescription medications in the context of therapy within the next like three to five years, maybe sooner. When it comes to questions around access, the hope is, is that for folks who have depression and trauma and PTSD diagnoses that these treatments will be covered by insurance. But the problem is that as we know, these medicines have also shown promise for a number of other indications that they won't be approved for. For example, psilocybin for nicotine dependence, alcoholism, eating disorders, the list goes on and on and on. And so essentially it's probable that these medications will be able to be prescribed using something that's 
something called, quote, off-label, which is how ketamine is currently being prescribed in the U.S. Ketamine was never actually approved for depression or acute suicidality, even though people are using it for that all over the country legally. If it's prescribed off-label, it may not be covered by insurance. So that's when we get into questions around, like, access to these medicines and equity. Another route to legalization that is, you know, we're hopefully going to see some movement on is some kind of amendment or expansion of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to allow for the ceremonial and spiritual use of psychedelics. So it's not something that we really talk about that much. We hear more about legalization through the FDA and decriminalization. But there are a number of of groups already in the United States who are claiming to use psychedelics religiously or ceremonially, even though they don't actually have an ancestral tie to that medicine. There's actually only two groups in the United States that have been granted the right to use psychedelics religiously by the federal government. The Unio de Vegetal, which is a Brazilian church that serves ayahuasca, and the Native American church for the use of peyote. That being said, there are like a, tons of groups that have been applying for an exemption from the Controlled Substances Act to use psychedelics under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And there are, you know, at- activists that are hopeful that there, that Congress will actually officially expand RIFRA, is how the, the acronym, to include access for those groups. So those are kind of the three ways that I'm seeing legalization or reform unfold. The thing that obviously differentiates psychedelics and cannabis is A, I mean, yes, arguably cannabis is a psychedelic. Also, yes, arguably, I won't say arguably, a psychedelics can be taken at subperceptual doses, i.e. microdosing, where you're not like, you know, time and space aren't distorted and you're able to, you know, function normally. But generally speaking, when people smoke weed versus when they do a psychedelic, the experience is very, very different because you can smoke weed and hang out with your friends at a party and arguably even drive safely. But if you're on mushrooms, like a gram or more, not so much. So that completely changes the way that they have to be regulated and the conversations we need to be having around them and the education that we need to be putting forth about them, which is what Double Blind is all about. I'll also just note that decriminalization in psychedelics is different from decriminalization in cannabis because when cannabis was decriminalized, many activists were seeing it as the first step towards legalization. Like first we're gonna decriminalize, then we're gonna legalize medically, then we're gonna legalize recreationally. But in psychedelics, decriminalization is actually being put forth in opposition to legalization. The idea being that with cannabis, what happened is that there were, as soon as we legalized, there was an over-regulation of cannabis. And the barriers to entry became so high that a lot of the pioneers that, you know, were growing cannabis in Humboldt going back to the 60s were completely shut out of the industry and unable to compete. And also all of the regulations around like childproofing and packaging and advertising and all these things made the price of cannabis itself go up really high so that now in California, you have more people purchasing cannabis on the black market or what some people refer to as the traditional market than buying cannabis at dispensaries. So that's why in the psychedelic movement, you have a lot of decriminalization activists saying, screw legalization, like let's just keep it decriminalized as long as people can't be arrested for the possession, use or gifting of of psilocybin and other natural psychedelics and they can grow them in their own house it won't matter, you know, if people are shut out of accessing psychedelics through the FDA. I don't quite agree with that. 
because, for example, there are people like my grandma who will never grow mushrooms in her house and just take them. There's a lot of people who won't do a psychedelic until they have the FDA stamp of approval and until they can do it in a context where they're supported by two therapists who really are going to, you know, help them navigate the experience. And so at Double Blind, we often say we're not trying to create a hierarchy of set and setting. And what we mean by that is that we're not anti-drug development and we're pro-decriminalization. We just want everyone who wants access to these medicines for healing to have it in the setting that is going to feel safest and most supportive to them, whether that's a ceremony, whether that's on their own with their friends, or whether that's with a therapist. And you, you touch upon this in your Rolling Stone article with Madison Margolin. Is there inherently a better, for instance, if you haven't tried psychedelics before, in your opinion, what's a better way to approach it? Do you start microdosing? Or should you do a macrodose? I mean, firstly, I'll just say that I I never give like individual, excuse me, individualized medical advice. Um, so just for anyone well, yes. listening to this, like <laughs> I'm not a doctor, I'm not giving you medical advice. Sure. I'll just say that taking a psychedelic is an incredibly personal choice. No therapist, no shaman can ever tell you this is the plant you should take, or this is the fungi you should take, this is when you should take it, and this is how much you should take. You're making a deeply intimate decision about putting something into your body that's going to shift the way you perceive, potentially open things up for you that you didn't even know were there. I do think that there's an element of, there's a there has to be a calling. And mm -hmm. it, it really begins, if you want to engage with psychedelics, in the same way that you might if you were contemplating doing anything really serious in your life, whether that's like moving or changing your job or getting a divorce, by becoming quiet and just spending time with yourself, journaling, meditating, reflecting on what your intention is and what you're hoping to get out of the experience. And then in terms of the substance itself, like should you do mushrooms? Should you do ayahuasca? Should you do... LSD? Should you do MDMA? Should you do ketamine? Like this is, all, there's also an element here of what do you, what substance do you feel called to? Because if you're doing it for mental health, you know, or to shift your perspective or to connect with God, like all of these substances have the potential to do that. Like every single, like ayahuasca, ketamine, psilocybin, LSD, they've all shown promise for depression and trauma and substance dependence. So I would say like, if you are not familiar at all with like all these different substances, then just like going online and, you know, I do think double blind is a great resource, you know, going online and reading like, what is the duration of each experience? How are these substances typically taken? Like, for example, if you're doing ketamine, you might be doing it in a clinic or there are some companies now that are sending people at home lozenges. But if you're doing ayahuasca, you're probably going to be sitting in a ceremony. If you're doing mushrooms, you might be sitting in a ceremony, but you also might just be like doing them on your own. Or if you're lucky enough to live in the state of Oregon, you can in the next two years <laughs> legally do them with a therapist. Yeah. It's just to say like, you, you have to just reflect on like, what is your intention? Sit with yourself, do research, and then, and then figure it out from there. I do think that microdosing can be a good way for people to get comfortable with the idea of having a psychedelic in their system. Some people mm -hmm. have a lot of fear and resistance around doing a psychedelic, like they want to, but they're just afraid. 
So I think that, you know, starting with subperceptual dose that might like slightly elevate your mood and make you feel better could like open you to the idea of having a larger dose experience. But also it's kind of widely believed among therapists and facilitators that there are times when like a bigger dose is kind of what's necessary. Like, you know, if you have like some really deep trauma or substance dependence or something like that, like a microdose might not might not do the trick for you. And I also will just add a disclaimer that like, if you do have a really, you know, if you have a history of mental health um, issues, especially if you have a history of mental health issues in your family as well, schizophrenia, bipolar, psychosis, anything like that, like your first call needs to be a psychedelic integration therapist. And you can call the Fireside Project has a hotline that you can call for free and you can talk to them because you know, it's easy to get excited about all these stories and Michael Pollan's book and this and that. But exactly you right. know, if, you, if, if you take a psychedelic and you are not supported and things come up for you, you could actually end up worse. So definitely do your homework. Yeah, definitely do your homework. And at Double Blind, we're here to help people do that. With Double Blind, you've got, what's the name of it? It's Fireside. I've never heard of it. Fireside what? Oh, the Fireside Project. It's not, um, it's a nonprofit uh, that's run by our friends. It's a hotline. We don't have anything to do with it, but we refer people there. That's fine. Yeah. No, I think that's fantastic. A lot of people don't realize, even if you have what you just said, if you have any sort of family history with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, it can trigger schizophrenic state that's life-changing and altering forever. Do you foresee yourself doing ayahuasca? I think it's fantastic that you did it with an all-female group through Double Blind. I mean, are there a lot of female groups that can partake in that ceremony? Not just Iquitos, but other places in the world? Yeah, there are. I mean, I think that, you know, it's really important for there to be safe spaces for people to do medicine yep. work. If someone doesn't feel safe, then they're not going to be able to really surrender to the experience, which is what's necessary to get the most out of it. Um, so there are absolutely, there are women retreats at the temple, also at Lucaterna and Buena Vida, which are two psilocybin retreat centers in Mexico. But there aren't just all women's retreats. There's also retreats for queer folks, there's retreats for people of color, there's retreats for veterans. And it's it's all like incredibly important. I'm happy to know that there are all of those types of groups, veterans, people of color, and so forth. That makes me very happy because you've got to feel safe. Otherwise, you're not going to have a breakthrough. Right. Do you see any other states other than Oregon on the forefront? California, for instance, where you are? Yeah, I mean, California has SB519, which has been quite controversial, but it's a decriminalization measure that was introduced by Senator Scott Weiner and is currently being considered by the state legislature. And in terms of bills that are similar to the psilocybin therapy initiative that was passed um, in November of 2020 in Oregon, which legalizes psilocybin therapy for all adults in the state. Um, as far as I'm aware, there have been state senators to introduce uh, bills like that in Hawaii and also in Florida, but they didn't really gain much traction. That being said, I do anticipate that more states will kind of follow in Oregon's footsteps. It's a really interesting model that's kind of been put forth in opposition to the FDA's model because 
with state le state legal legal psilocybin therapy, you don't need to have an indication like depression. You can just anyone who's in the state will have access in a supportive setting that's licensed by the state. Are they going to allow people out of state residents to go there or no? I, I don't know. That's a really good question. I wonder the same thing. I'd be interested in partaking in a therapy session, but I don't necessarily want to move to Oregon right. as beautiful as it is. Is that effective January 1st, 20 next uh, year? You know what? I'm not sure. Um, let's see. I think they said it was passed in November of 2020. And if I'm remembering correctly, yep. they said it would take a couple of years. They put together like a, a psilocybin advisory board thing with like different people in the psychedelic community and different government officials and stuff. And they're just figuring out all the specifics of like let, how they're going to license and who they're going to license and all this. So I think they said it would take a couple years, but I'm not sure what the exact timeline is. And you touch upon ketamine. What are your thoughts on ketamine? My thoughts on ketamine. <laughs> um. <laughs> Have well, you had it? Have you taken it? I mean, I've done ketamine, like I've snorted ketamine um, and done right. ketamine nasal sprays. And for the record, like never recreationally, although I know that that's like a thing that people do. I actually like to do ketamine sometimes and meditate. We call them ketitations at Double Blind. But uh, I've never actually had a, an, an IM or, or IV ketamine treatment. It's something that I would like to try. From what I hear... You know, ketamine, much like MDMA, can be a great psychedelic for people because it's gentler. It's not as scary as some of the classic psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD and, of course, ayahuasca. Also, one of the benefits of it, of course, is that it is currently legal. And so, you know, access is a huge problem because it's super expensive. It's like many thousands of dollars to, to do ketamine because most clinics will recommend that you do like a minimum of six treatments. And then there's also questions around how long the ketamine actually lasts. Like my understanding is that it really kind of differs on the person, but a lot of times people will do like six treatments. They'll feel really, really transformed. And then like once a year, once every six months or whatever, like they kind of have to go back for like a tune-up. You know, I think that it's great that it's legal. It's great that it's accessible. It's great that it's healing people. And also there are limitations both in terms of how long it lasts, how expensive it is, et cetera. Yeah. It's the cost is what is uh, mind blowing to me. It's very expensive. Yeah. And then integration, set and setting. You talk about it all the time. Are there places, forums, facilities, self-guided methods that you would recommend for listeners who are interested? And can you kind of touch upon the importance of integration? Totally. I mean, first, I'll just say that double blind, like I could never possibly cover everything that a person would want to know about taking psychedelics or where to take psychedelics <laughs> in an hour long podcast. So we have courses designed exactly for this. One of them is called how to use psychedelics. And it covers like everything from how to choose the right psychedelic for you, how to prepare for your experience, how to navigate it, how to integrate it. It includes a database of trusted psychedelic integration therapists and retreat centers that we love. So just putting that out there for anyone who feels called. Um, and we also do offer scholarships. We never shut anyone out of anything we do. So if you like, we really appreciate it if you can afford it uh, to pay because the money goes back to funding our journalism. But like, if you can't, you just email us and we'll just enroll you for free and that's fine and no questions asked. So 
anyway, that's just what I'll say on that. In terms of retreat centers, as mentioned, the Temple of the Way of Light is great for ayahuasca. For psilocybin, I would refer people to Lucaterna or Buena Vida in Mexico or Synthesis in the Netherlands. Yeah, I mean, there's more, but those are kind of some of our favorites. And I'm going to ask you again, what about integration? Ah, uh, right. That's the most important thing because people are having these mind, all, they're having these very seminal experiences and breakthrough experiences with past trauma or pain and suffering from their lives. And then they're going back to their desk jobs or whatever. And then eventually just going back where they once were. Right. How does one avoid that? I think it's important before going into a psychedelic experience um, to ask yourself if you're ready to make the changes in your life that the psychedelic might prompt you to make. And if you're able to do that. And so, look, sometimes we go into psychedelic experiences and we realize things that we never, ever could have possibly realized without the psychedelic. Other times you realize what you kind of already knew already, but it's just like more deeply embedded in your conscience and you have like a, a new sense of sort of urgency around actually making that change that you know you've needed to make for a really long time. So for example, if you're in a toxic relationship or you hate your job or you don't like where you live or something like that, or you drink too much alcohol or whatever. So I think taking the time to like look at those things and say, okay, like if mother ayahuasca shows me like I need to, you know, sell my house and move to Costa Rica, or I need to divorce my wife, or I need to, what, like, am I actually ready and willing to do that? And also making sure that you design the experience such that you have like at least a week before the experience where before you even get on the plane to wherever you're going, where you're just taking space from your devices, you're journaling, you're doing yoga, you're tending to yourself. And at least a week after where, you know, you can process what came up for you. You know, before you go into your ceremony, you have either, I mean, ideally you've had like one session with an integration therapist who knows that you're going and knows why you're going and is like going to have a session with you when you get back. But, and, and just for the record, like a lot of people think of therapy through kind of this Western medical lens where you have to see your therapist like every week for the rest of your life, but that's actually not true. It can be really helpful to have like a session before, a session or two before and a session or two after with an integration therapist. So that's something that I would consider. And then if it's something you can't afford or it's something that you just don't want to do, also taking the time to explore what kind of communities exist online and in person to help support you before and after the experience. So again, we have like a list of all the different like integration resources we love in our courses, but like one of them is the integration circle. You can just literally the integration circle on Facebook. It's a circle that's run by Deanna Rogers and Ido Cohen. They're incredible. And they do virtual integration circles online, connecting with community. Double Blind has like a membership program with like beautiful, beautiful, like every month we do like a cannabis ceremony or breath work or an integration circle. And like, it's such a beautiful group of people. So like, that's another way that you can like find communities through us. Just making sure that you really like, in terms of integration, I think you're getting the point here. Like it's just about care and thought and space because to throw yourself back into your job and then to like judge yourself for like, 
going back into your old habits, like you're setting yourself up for failure. That's exactly right. And you're going to have hiccups and roadblocks. My point is, is it's all personal. Everybody's path is different. And that's the one thing that I'm seeing with this boom of psychedelic renaissance, so to speak, is I don't want people to think that it's just, this is going to save you from all of your problems because it's not, but it is very helpful. And why I talk about it, and it's very important for me to share with the listeners, is that I do believe and will always believe that it is a plant medicine is a much better alternative than just being held hostage to Prozac or any other of the antidepressants. I just think they're better alternatives, in my personal opinion. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of hating on big pharma and the Western medical community in the plant medicine space. And I'll say that, at least from what I can tell, SSRIs help a lot of people. We're not anti-SSRIs. We're not anti-prolonged exposure and other modalities of therapy for treating trauma that have historically worked, but they also do fail a lot of people. So that's something we have to, to look at. Yeah, I mean, that's how I came into plant medicine. I took the leap of faith because I was having treatment-resistant depression. And plant medicine is one way to address your anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me about uh, Double Blind and what you all are doing. It's really great that you all have all these resources out there. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. And uh, I hope there will be some listeners who will take you up with your programs because they're great. I wish I'd known about them before I went. (laughs) Maybe for the next retreat, if I go anytime in the near future. But uh, Shelby, thank you so much. Of course, of course. Have a good one. Thanks again to everyone listening and to Shelby Hartman for joining me on Neurons to Nirvana. It is becoming increasingly evident that many Americans are now learning that psychedelics have a tremendous amount of promise to serve as an alternative to alleviate depression, anxiety, and PTSD. If you are interested in exploring the world of psychedelics, please click on the link in the show notes to gain access to Double Blind's vast resources and courses on popular subjects such as how to microdose and many more. If after extensive research and receiving expert guidance from a professional, you still think that you are a good fit for a psychedelic, then please also see the link and information to Fireside Project, the first free hotline for psychedelic support. Neurons to Nirvana has now surpassed well over 100,000 downloads. I would love to know who is out there listening and to receive your feedback. Please click the link in the show notes to fill out a short survey for an opportunity to sign up for my email newsletter. As always, until next time, I am Tom Hartridge and this is Neurons to Nirvana. Neurons to Nirvana.